Welcome back to The Health Beats. A podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Ali Burgess. And I'm Neha Anand. In today's episode, medical student Morgan Snow talks with Dr. Chantel Cross, a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at Johns Hopkins. They go through what infertility treatment exactly is, fertility treatment during the COVID pandemic, and barriers to receiving treatment. But first, let's discuss some recent headlines. You may have heard that a third vaccine was approved by the FDA in the United States for emergency authorization. The Johnson & Johnson single-dose vaccine was authorized on February 27th, and now President Biden has predicted that there will be enough vaccine available for all adults by the end of May, as Johnson & Johnson has made a deal with Merck to boost its supply of the vaccine. Johnson Johnson's vaccine works a bit differently than the mRNA vaccines of Pfizer and Moderna. How exactly does it work, Ali? Yeah, Neha, this is really exciting. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is manufactured using a specific type of virus called adenovirus, which helps to deliver a piece of the DNA that's used to make the SARS-CoV-2 virus's spike protein. The adenovirus has been modified for the vaccine, so it can't replicate in the body to cause illness. And the production of spike protein triggers the immune system to learn how to defend the body against COVID, which is pretty great. Immunity builds over a few weeks, and data from J&J show that most participants had a robust immune response 15 days after, with significant protection at day 29. Compared to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has some distinct advantages. First, it can be kept at a refrigerator temperature for months. And this is in contrast to both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which are mRNA vaccines that need to be kept at very cold temperatures like negative 70 and negative 20 degrees Celsius. Yeah, and keeping it at refrigerator temperatures instead of freezer temperatures really help with wide distribution. The J&J vaccine only requires one dose as opposed to two doses. This is really key for individuals who may have barriers to returning for a second shot or may not want to schedule a second appointment due to inconvenience or even may be concerned that there's not enough supply of the vaccine for a second dose. Yeah, so this vaccine has the potential to be a game changer and it's been shown to be quite effective as well. The shot demonstrated 72% effectiveness in the United States and also prevented 100% of hospitalizations and deaths. It was also found that the effectiveness of this vaccine to prevent severe disease four weeks after immunization was 85%. And it's important to note that experts have pointed out that it's not really fair to compare the results of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that have been shown to have a higher effectiveness. And this is because the Johnson & Johnson trial was conducted during a different time when more contagious variants were in circulation. So you may be concerned about, you know, which vaccine to get with these three options now being available. Experts say that you should get whichever vaccine as soon as you're eligible because the longer you wait, the longer you have a risk of contracting COVID-19, which could be potentially deadly. So even though Johnson & Johnson has different numbers compared to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, it is still a very valid vaccine to get. Speaking about vaccines, there has been a lot of misinformation spreading about the COVID-19 vaccines that may cause infertility. 
And just to be very clear, there's no current evidence that any of the vaccines lead to infertility. We actually discussed this in our third episode of The Health Beat, called Race for a Vaccine, that was released when the first results of phase three trials were being released. This false claim came from the theory that the genetics of a placental protein were similar to the genetics of the protein on the coronavirus that the vaccines are targeting. But these genetics are only slightly similar. However, this was picked up by anti-vaccination groups on social media and they began spreading this false claim. But health experts say that this theory is not very biologically plausible because the parts of the genetic code that match are very small. Even further, for the Pfizer trial, pregnant patients were excluded, but 12 participants who received the vaccine became pregnant during the trial. Also, there's the argument that if the immune response against the vaccine leads to infertility, so would a natural COVID infection. And given the number of Americans that have been infected with COVID-19, we would expect a decline in fertility rates if this were truly a risk. But there hasn't been a decline in fertility, and so this is another argument against this false claim. It's really important to dispel misinformation so we can try to combat vaccine hesitancy and everybody can get the vaccine at some point. And this is a topic that we delved into more in our sixth episode, Health Misinformation and Communication, if that's something you're interested in learning more about. So communication is not only important for dispelling myths and rumors, but it's also important to know how to discuss health issues that may be stigmatized, like infertility treatment. And this is something that uh, Morgan and Dr. Cross discuss. So let's now transition to their conversation. Dr. Cross, thank you so much for coming on today. I know so many of us at The Health Beat and I are so excited for this conversation, not only because fertility preservation has become this hot topic among young people and people looking to delay childbearing and people like medical students, but also because it's such a rare treat that we get to ask these questions of someone who is truly an expert. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here and I'm happy to share whatever knowledge information I have with with all the students at at Hopkins. Let's jump right in. I was hoping to start off by asking if you could tell us a bit about your path in medicine and how you chose to become an infertility specialist. Oh, yeah. Great question. So when I first decided I wanted to be a doctor when I was quite young, well before I even knew what that really meant, (laughs) and I knew I was interested in the medicine aspects of being a doctor. And so I initially, when I was in um, medical school, thought I was going to be an internal medicine specialist and cardiologist. And it wasn't until my OBGYN rotation, which is one of my last rotations during my clinical years, is that I discovered the life of an OBGYN. And I decided that's definitely what I wanted to do. It combined a lot of the medicine aspects that I liked, but surprisingly, I also liked procedures. And so for me, it was a, a nice balance. So I went to medical school at UCLA and then I um, applied for residency and I matched at Hopkins where I did my OBGYN residency training. And during the years there, I, I still liked procedures, but I you know, was trying to look at each of the subspecialties to figure out what fit well with my personality and what I wanted my broader life goals to be, what I wanted my day-to-day life to look like. And I felt that REI really 
spoke to me because of all of the medicine, specifically the endocrinology, as well as the continuity of care. And so I see patients of all ages and patients frequently come back to me for their second child or third child. And so I get the continuity of care while also getting to provide operative procedures without having to be in the OR all day, every day for hours on end. So for me, it was a perfect pairing of my interests and the style of medicine that I like to practice. Yeah, yeah, I can absolutely see the appeal of that. So you touched on this a little bit, but would you mind expanding on what your current infertility work looks like? Yeah, so I see patients uh, who have either hormone abnormalities that impact their cycles, so, so women who have premature ovarian insufficiency, who may or may not be trying to achieve a pregnancy. I see patients with infertility, those with recurrent pregnancy loss, recurrent miscarriages, women who are in the menopausal transition and are having trouble managing their hormones and some of the side effects therein, as well as provide operative management for some fertility surgical issues for patients. Sounds like you're doing a lot. (laughs) It's a full plate. (laughs) Well, that's great. So if we could take a step back and just broadly What does fertility preservation really mean and who are candidates for that kind of treatment? Yeah, so the fertility preservation umbrella encompasses anybody who either wants to not get pregnant now, but wants to ensure or try to assure their future fertility potential. So that can mean a person who has a new cancer diagnosis, who knows that they're going to undergo gonadotoxic treatment and where their egg supply or or ovaries may be hindered or damaged with that process. So they want to freeze their eggs in some way so that in the future, those eggs can be used uh, without worrying about the impact of their treatment. Similarly, some women have medical conditions like endometriosis or recurrent ovarian cysts, where their treatment may impact or harm their ovaries or egg supply and are at risk of future infertility based upon their medical diagnosis. And those patients also may choose to preserve their fertility. And then you have patients who, for social aspects, whether it be career, financial decisions, family planning decisions, are not ready to have a child at the moment, but want to not put a time frame on that. And so they're able to freeze their eggs when they're younger so that if they have trouble getting pregnant in the future, they have these eggs from when they were younger available to them. So you can have it for medical reasons as well as for social reasons. Right. And so for each of those groups, what would be the options for those who are looking to expand their reproductive options or, or their time horizon? Yeah. So for patients who have ovaries, then the first option is to freeze eggs. Okay. And so that's a medical treatment that's very similar to in vitro fertilization, where we put the patient through hormone treatments to help their ovaries to produce multiple eggs at a time. And then we're able to do a surgical procedure to freeze those eggs in our laboratory. Some patients choose to retrieve their eggs and immediately fertilize them. And that fertilized egg is now what we call an embryo, and you can freeze embryos as well. In some patients, depending upon whether or not they're partnered 
or the nature of those relationships or the status of those relationships you can imagine, I may choose to freeze eggs, embryos, or commonly a mixture of both. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then let me ask you this. And I know we could probably spend a full hour talking just about this. So maybe just at a high level, what does the egg freezing process look like? And how does that differ from freezing embryos? The medical treatment leading up to an egg freezing or embryo freezing cycle is the same. So it's hormone injections that a patient gives themselves typically for about 10 to 12 days. On a high level, it's around two to three injections per day, as well as frequent ultrasounds to monitor the growth and progress, as well as lab work to track the progress. And then typically around 10 to 12 days later, there's a a procedure under light sedation where we uh, are able to remove the eggs from the ovaries without any incisions all through the vagina, a 30 minute procedure and quick recovery. And for patients who are freezing eggs that day, the eggs are examined and determined if they're at a stage where they can be frozen. If a patient chooses to freeze embryos that day, the partner or the donor of the sperm will be used to fertilize the eggs on that same day. And then we would allow those fertilized eggs, now embryos, to develop in our lab for about five to six days to make sure that they're viable. And once they reach a stage of viability where we have a good chance that those embryos could result in a pregnancy, those embryos would be frozen at that point. Got it. Okay. So that sounds like a bit of a process. It is. (laughs) Um, Could you speak to maybe some of the, the side effects of that process or maybe even some of the emotional impact of fertility treatment? Yeah, so I think the emotional impacts of fertility treatment for patients with infertility are different than patients who may be doing fertility preservation. And I think I, I think those are, are different, but obviously related things. And so I think for patients with infertility, the fertility treatments are stressful, right? They've um, been working so long and hard to achieve a pregnancy and now are having to live that every day with medical treatments that are a reminder of how they perceive their deficiencies. Although I acknowledge that that's not a deficiency and fertility is stigmatized, but some patients take that on and take that very personally, right? And so it's a constant reminder of of what they're going through. And the medications that we use can raise hormone levels. And some patients are more sensitive to fluctuations in their hormone levels, and that can manifest in mood symptoms. But most patients, I'd say, do well as it relates to the hormone fluctuations and the mood symptoms. Some people, you know, are, their bodies are more sensitive to those changes. For patients with fertility preservation for cancer, you can imagine that this is another highly stressful time because usually we're on a very short time frame for which we can have the opportunity to do the the egg freezing cycle before their impending chemotherapy or bone marrow transplant or whatever treatment they're going to have to face. And so it's a really high stress time. And so a lot of support is needed. And typically patients who are doing it uh, for elective reasons have stress as well, because they're paying typically out of pocket and really want to have a good outcome and are, you know, worried about how many eggs are going to be frozen and are those eggs going to be useful to them. And so I think they're all stressful, but there's different sources of stress depending on why you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 
And so you mentioned their stigma, and maybe I could ask you to describe the role stigma plays in your patient's decision-making and the kind of support they receive. Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, it varies. So we know that infertility, although it's very common, right? One in five patients, one in eight patients are dealing with infertility or recurrent pregnancy loss, despite how common it is. It's something that people don't like to talk about. They feel as if it's something that is their fault, something that they've done or didn't do or should have done earlier. And if I would have just done this thing, or if I hadn't, you know, had this abortion in the past, I wouldn't be in this position now, right? And we know those things are not related for the vast majority of people. And a lot of this is out of their control. So it, it also varies culturally and based on religious beliefs as well regarding the diagnosis of infertility and the decision to seek infertility treatment. And so as the reproductive health specialist that they're seeing, when I sense someone who is feeling feelings of guilt or shame, trying to address those and, you know, speaking life into that so that it can just get out there. So how are you feeling and what barriers have brought you to, to seeking care now? And how can I support you through it? And just trying to be there for that person. We do have reproductive health therapists that we refer patients to who are really struggling uh, with this process. I, I wish I could say that at Hopkins, we had a reproductive therapists in our office. Some fertility centers have that, and I think that's an amazing resource, but we don't have one in our office. We do have therapists that we work with closely that have specialized training in this area. Wow. I had no idea that there were therapists dedicated to reproductive health. That's so interesting. And yeah, what a great resource. So changing tracks a little bit. Fertility testing has increased in popularity in recent years, especially, like I mentioned, among young professionals who plan to delay childbearing. What do you recommend for this group of patients? Well, I'd say that if you're in your early to mid-30s, and if you know that you want children or are considering having children in the future, and there's no active plans to become pregnant within the next several years, it would be a good idea to come and talk to a reproductive um, endocrinologist about the options for preserving fertility with egg freezing. Because a woman's fertility or a person who has ovaries fertility declines with age, okay? And we know that the rate at which fertility declines accelerates in the mid-30s. And so in the mid-30s is a good time to consider egg freezing because if you're not trying to conceive then or in the next three to five years, by the time you're in your late 30s to early 40s, there's much higher rates of infertility and also fertility treatment, if it's needed, is less successful. And so those patients are at higher risk of needing the same treatment that they would have gone through to freeze their eggs before and would have better potential with those eggs that were frozen earlier. Right. That makes sense. So then let me ask you this question and please correct me because this is based on reviewing research as a first-year medical student. So I'd appreciate your input here. But I've noticed, and I've been getting these Instagram ads from online fertility testing services. And so I kind of looked into what they do. 
And it seems like a lot of their fertility testing is reliant on anti-malarian hormone um, mm -hmm. and checking those levels to kind of predict future ovarian reserve. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the research really indicates that AMH levels for individuals without infertility don't necessarily correlate with future fertility potential or time to pregnancy and maybe shouldn't be used to predict reproductive status or onset of menopause. So then how do you effectively evaluate the long-term fertility of someone who is, you know, seemingly fertile? Yeah, so it's a good question. And we see patients like this all the time who come in because on both sides, well, someone checked my AMH and it's low and they told me that I'm never going to be able to get pregnant and need to do IVF right now. <laughs> and you just take a step back and say, well, well, I'm sorry that that's what you, what you were told. And, you know, we know, as, as you correctly state, AMH is one marker of ovarian reserve, and that's just a marker of egg supply. And the cutoffs that were used to define what's normal and not normal, we're looking at research to say, well, how can we predict which patients are going to be good responders to an IVF simulation? And then we'll stratify those results based upon, you know, people who responded well and then who didn't respond well to IVF, right? And because AMH is this marker that is relatively stable over time and doesn't fluctuate with the phase of the menstrual cycle, it's easy to draw and to use. And it's been extrapolated and tried to be used for other reasons, like you mentioned. But as you said, AMH does not predict the ability for someone to get pregnant unassisted. Okay. It does not predict the ability for someone to get pregnant with low-level fertility treatments like intrauterine insemination, okay? It does predict the number of eggs that we may get at a time of an, of an IVF cycle. And if you're doing IVF with the goal of getting multiple eggs and multiple embryos, you can imagine that if a patient is able to get multiple embryos, they have a higher chance of getting pregnant because there's multiple attempts there, right? And so that's all that the AMH tells me, right? And so it should not be used to forecast or to predict future fertility potential or to predict when someone goes into menopause. There have been many studies that have tried to use AMH for that reason and found that it's not predictive of those things. And so we should be judicious in the use of that test. As it relates to fertility preservation, how I use that test is if I have someone who was maybe on the fence, right? They're in their early 30s considering egg freezing, not sure if they have the resources right now, may have the resources in a few years, you know, wanting to kind of feel out what to do. My, my counseling would, say, would be to say, just based on your age, you, if you want to consider egg freezing, now's the time to do it. But if you can't, and it would put you at a big impediment to do so now, we could check your egg supply. We can check your AMH. And if it's very reassuring, then maybe you can wait a couple of years to reconsider this. But if it's lower than we'd anticipate based on your age, although I can't predict whether or not you're ever gonna need fertility treatment, you might wanna do it now versus in a few more years when your egg supply may be lower and we may have less yield. 
that explanation is very helpful. And I think would would prevent a lot of freakouts. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about ovaries and uteruses, which is all wonderful. But let me ask you, what should sperm producing individuals consider when thinking about fertility preservation? Well, sperm producing individuals produce sperm for most of their reprodu- most of their life. <laughs> Lucky them. Lucky them, right? So, you know, for for sperm, we know that as patients age, sperm production does decline and fertility potential also declines with age. However, for sperm producing individuals, that decline begins somewhere in the 40s, in in the 40 years of age. And so typically they don't have a need for fertility preservation with sperm for sperm freezing, unless similarly they're undergoing potentially chemotherapy or medical treatments that would impact sperm production and quality. The issues that arise with age is that some of the parameters of the semen analysis start to decline with age, but there's a longer time to pregnancy as well and some issues or increased risk of genetic syndromes, neuropsychiatric disorders with the children for patients who are over the age of 40. Got it. And as you were answering that, I was also thinking about, do you often see trans individuals looking to go through transition but maintain their fertility? Yeah, so we have we're a partnership with the Center uh, for Transgender Health at Hopkins, and so we do see patients who are uh, wanting to preserve fertility prior to medical treatment or for uh, gender affirming treatment, and so we see that in ways for for sperm cryopreservation in those instances, or similarly egg freezing. A lot of support is needed because a lot of the treatments may induce feelings of gender dysphoria and the procedures themselves for the patients with ovaries, we use transvaginal ultrasounds. And so a lot of that, a lot of those procedures, you know, can cause some level of stress and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting to note and just, you know, really tailoring that treatment to the individual. So I had the opportunity to watch some of your videos online, which Mm -hmm. were wonderful. And you've spoken a lot about how infertility affects Black families differently and how success rates of infertility treatment have been found to be lower among Mm African-Americans. What are some of the factors that seem to drive this disparity? And how can fertility treatment be optimized for Black patients' needs? Well, I think it's a difficult question. We know that success rates across the board are lower for African-American patients compared to other ethnicities. That may be due to the age at which African-Americans may seek treatment. It may be due to secondary comorbidities like fibroids, endometriosis, obesity, which is more prevalent in the African-American community, and diabetes and hypertension all, which may play a role in success. There have been lots of studies looking at this. Some studies have even controlled for these confounders and found that these differences and disparities persist despite controlling for some of these other factors that I mentioned. It's been thought that perhaps it was related to access to care. There was a really large study looking in the military where access to care is not an issue and found that these disparities persist even in that population. 
So it's an interesting question, but I, I don't think we have all the answers. I think how can we help patients is to encourage them that despite those disparities, your treatment options are better with treatment than without. And we need to enroll more African-Americans into studies so that we can figure out if there are certain treatments that may be more successful in certain ethnicities so that we can find treatments to tailor to particular groups. As an aside, I think that military study is so interesting and I have a million questions about that, but that's not for the podcast. But, um, that's all really, that's all really good to know. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a bit about access to care. And I know as a clinician, you're probably not so interested in the financing. But let me ask you a little bit about the major costs of undergoing fertility treatment and preservation. And what are some things that insurance might cover? It's variable based upon your insurer and your employer. So there are certain big Box corporations, Starbucks, I think was in the news. Google, for example, announced, I think about five or six years ago, that they were going to cover elective utility preservation for their employees. And so I think that's when it really hit the mainstream media about this option. I'd say that most employers are not that generous. And so most employers would deem uh, insurers, groups would deem fertility preservation for non-cancer diagnosis of an elective procedure and would be out of pocket. And so that expense can be, you know, twenty dollars to $30,000, depending upon the amount of medications and doses of medications that are needed. Wow. Yeah. I, I can see how that would be a, a barrier to yeah. care. What are, what are some of the other barriers that, that you see? Honestly, the um, I think the financial one is, is the biggest barrier. Since I'm in Baltimore, people typically have access to, to us. I think that's different. I think obviously in other communities where reproductive endocrinologists are few and far between and literal, literal access <laughs> to a specialist. And most patients have support, but usually it's the financial barriers that really is the biggest issue. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I think there's a lot of information online about diets and supplements and exercise in terms of fertility. But what do you recommend as far as diet and exercise for those interested in maintaining their long-term fertility or things to avoid? Definitely avoid smoking. Smoking can accelerate the egg loss that that we see that happens with age. It can affect tubal mobility and transport and can lead to infertility. So definitely no smoking, you know, heavy alcohol use can lower fertility. And so just obviously social or moderate alcohol, you know, is typically okay when someone's not actively trying to conceive. Otherwise, a healthy diet, a balanced diet that's not full of fast food or high cholesterol containing foods, but really there isn't one proven diet that's best for someone who's trying to get pregnant or to preserve their fertility, just a healthy diet and regular exercise. That's good to hear. So I don't need to go on a juice cleanse. You may want to for other reasons, but not for your fertility. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit, we here at the Health Beat talk a lot about COVID. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a couple questions about that. Just generally, how is COVID affecting fertility treatment? Well, 
now that we know a little bit more, it's less of an impact than what it was for us right when COVID first hit. It really, we had to stop doing our egg retrieval cycles and offer all fertility treatments. We weren't really sure what the impact of COVID would be on a person who was pregnant or or their fertility success. And so that was a, a big hit for a lot of patients who, as you can imagine, have been waiting, waiting already to achieve their family. And then we're told that sorry, we're pausing things for an unforeseen amount of time. Now that we know more, we know that women or patients who are pregnant are at higher risk for more severe symptoms of COVID-19. And that is outlined very nicely on the CDC's website as a high risk group for more severe symptoms. And so we really encourage our patients who are trying to become pregnant to do everything that they can to minimize the risk for exposure. It's affected patients in cycle because we are doing COVID testing on our patients prior to their egg retrieval procedures and embryo transfers. And if they test positive, then that limits their ability to continue their treatment. But overall, I'd say that it, it hasn't stopped our ability to offer care for most patients unless they're actively have COVID. That sounds like a lot to keep track of on top of already the intricacies of fertility treatment. Yeah. So we've noted that ACOG and SMFM have stressed that COVID vaccines should not be withheld from pregnant women. So does that extend to patients undergoing infertility treatment? And what would you say to patients who might be worried about the vaccine affecting their pregnancy or their ability to conceive? Yeah, so there was a, another joint statement with, you can look this up, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, ASRM that advocates similarly and echoes ACOG's and SMFM's recommendations. And what that statement says is that the current vaccines use mRNA. And because it's not a live vaccine, it should not have any impact on reproductive health. It should not increase risk for miscarriage or stillbirth or lead to infertility. So for those reasons, we would encourage patients who are trying to become pregnant, who are pregnant, and who are lactating to consider vaccination if they want it and are eligible to receive it. And it um, does not impact your ability to have treatment. It shouldn't delay treatment, whether you have the first shot or about to get the second. We don't think it has any bearing. The only thing that that statement also says is that the second vaccine may be associated with an increased risk of fever, and fever in the first trimester in some studies has been linked to an increased risk for birth defects. And so in those studies, though, treating with Tylenol was able to minimize the risk of birth defects. So we'd say that if you're going to get the second vaccine or the first vaccine, you might want to take some Tylenol just to mitigate the risk of fever. Mm-hmm. I I had my second vaccine the other day and I definitely needed Tylenol. (laughs) Well, Dr. Cross, thank you so much. This has Mm -hmm. been such an enlightening and I think empowering conversation. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Well, I, I think this has been great. I'm so glad that you guys had me so I could share my knowledge about, you know, fertility. And I, I just would encourage everyone to you just be thoughtful about your fertility over time, not to panic about it. But if it's something that is concerning you, if you know you've had multiple surgeries that may impact your fertility, it's always best to just seek a consultation to get information. 
and to potentially have testing if it's warranted and know that we offer these services and that we're all here to support you. Dr. Cross, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. If you've made it this far, you must be really interested in current health news topics. Follow us on COVID Up to Date for news headlines related to the pandemic and make sure to subscribe to The Health Beat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a great review and let us know what topics you want covered in the future. See you next time. Thank you.